This is Speaking Well. I'm your host, Greg Dickinson. This is the podcast about communication and everyday life. In each episode, we will talk with a communication expert and scholar and explore how communication research can provide resources for navigating complex interactions. We'll talk about relationships and politics, social media and film, public speaking, and private talk. In this podcast, we will offer straightforward but often challenging explorations about communication centrality to our lives. Today, I welcome Dr. Kit Hughes to our episode of Speaking Well. Kit is an assistant professor of media and visual culture at Colorado State University. She specializes in non-theatrical film, useful and orphan media, and histories of technology. Her book, Television at Work, explores how American business developed workplace television as a medium of industrial efficiency, ideological orientation, and corporate expansion. Her research on sponsored film, workplace media, and early video formats and digital humanities methods has appeared in a range of journals and edited collections, including Film History, Media, Culture and Society, Television and New Media, The Arc Light Guidebook, Media Industries Journal, and Film Criticism. It's really great to have you with us, Kit, for today's episode. Could you tell us a little bit about what you do at Colorado State University? Yes, thank you for having me. I'm so delighted to be here. I teach a number of classes, primarily on contemporary film and television, primarily focusing on entertainment industries. And like you said, my research, which I do when I'm not teaching, focuses on media history. So when people hear something like orphan film or non-theatrical cinema, those terms seem kind of specialized. Basically what that means is I'm interested in the use of film and television and other media outside of the theater and outside of the living room. So I'm looking at media that's used in schools, in workplaces, in prisons, in hospitals, in all of these other locations. And I'm really interested in all of the different ways we come into contact with media outside of the context of entertainment. That's one of the things that I've really appreciated about your work, Kit, is that bringing in those things that we don't often think about when we hear media or a media class, we, we think about television or, as you said, what we do in the theater or the living room or wherever we kind of consume mediated messages today. Uh, in fact, when we think about media and think about TV shows, YouTube, TikTok videos, that sort of thing, we often don't think about media and work. But it seems to me you've explored how companies have used technologies of mass media like TV and film to engage internal communication to help us help us or hinder us in, in doing the work that we do in our workplace. Can you tell us more about this? How have companies used media to manage workers? Well, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. And you mentioned uh, my book, which looks at the history of television in the workplace from the post-World War II era, so the late 1940s, to about the mid-1990s when employers turned to digital technologies, online video and all of those sorts of, of media for reaching out to their workers. And I think when I say television in the workplace, it kind of sounds a little funny. Uh, when we think about TV, or at least when I thought about TV before this project, I would think about entertainment, I would think about fun, leisure time, all of those sorts of things, which makes it a kind of odd fit for the workplace. 
But actually, that's exactly why workplaces liked television and why they wanted to use television for corporate communications, because they thought our associations with TV as fun, as something we do with family and friends, could be really useful to make corporate communications more persuasive. And so let me talk about a few ways in which companies actually use television and, and it can kind of clarify what they were hoping to achieve. So one of the earlier uses of TV that we see in the workplace was the VCR. And for people who are less familiar with a somewhat older technology, the VCR was the predecessor of the Blu-ray, the DVD, right? It was a technology that could play recorded materials when, you know, at the time, if you were watching TV, it had to be live. So it was quite revolutionary to be able to tape something, watch it later. And this was called time shifting. And so people who owned VHS players and recorders in the late 70s could use it to watch their favorite shows whenever they wanted to. And that was, of course, very exciting. But for workplaces, they saw the VHS and they saw a tool or a technology that they could use to extend the workday and extend the space of work. So what you see are companies recording video materials for their workers and then asking them to watch those materials after the workday's over. So actually taking those tapes home and watching them perhaps with their family in a more leisurely context. And keep in mind, in the late 70s, the VHS was a very new technology. It was the cat's pajamas. So actually being able to watch these corporate communications on this cool, futuristic, almost technology uh, seemed very exciting at the time. So that maybe the workers who were being asked to watch training videos at home or watch morale videos at home might not feel as upset or annoyed or irritated or anything like that when they were being asked to essentially do work on their time off, right? So one of the ways in which companies used television was to ask people to extend the amount of time that they were working. The other thing that companies tried to do with the VHS and having people watch workplace communications at home was use the, the affective resonance of the home. And what do I mean by that? Well use the associations of the home with family, again, to make their messages more persuasive. So a specific example here is a company union propaganda home with their workers and ask them to watch it at home with their family at the time with their wives. That was the expectation. And the logic there was that if you're a worker and you're watching this tape that your employer gave you that's telling you all of the scary things that are going to happen if you join a union, you might be fired, your wages might go down, your friends might be fired, and you're sitting in your living room, you're sitting there with your wife, with your kid, all of these people who depend on you, that that's going to have a lot more impact than if you were just to go to a mandatory training meeting in the workplace. So the VHS in that context is both extending the workday, but also extending, extending the spaces of work. So it seems like a bit of a curio, this old historical thing that doesn't maybe have a clear connection to the current moment, but we could also think about it as a precursor to email, right? 
email, another one of these technologies that's sort of breaking down the barriers between the time and space we devote to work and the time and space we devote to leisure. And so this is a this is a tradition that goes, you know, 50 years back with the VHS where employers were trying to accomplish those goals. I can offer a second example that's maybe a little more uh, recent if you're interested. Yes, give me a second example. That'd be great. So one of the most curious things that I found when I was researching this book was a case study that I put into my, my final chapter. And I was looking through some historical documents, going about my research process, and I found that companies in the 80s and 90s were spending millions of dollars on their own television channels. So companies would devote just a ton of money and staff to creating these satellite television networks. So Ford had their own network. A lot of these companies were major Fortune 500 companies or middle ground companies that had dealerships or different outlets for their business across the country. But they would devote a ton of money, a ton of time, a ton of staff to creating their own TV channels that were for no one except their own employees. And I couldn't make heads or tails of it. I couldn't figure it out why they would go to these lengths to create these television shows. So an example, one of my favorites, was this news program that a, a company that creates internal temperature controls for other companies had for their employees. And it looked exactly like local news. They even hired a woman as their anchor who was a former news anchor. It was a perfect rendition of a local news program. It would run a half an hour. The, the beginning of the episode would always be large-scale economic news, major headlines. By the end of the show, they would be doing human interest stories, and the production values were incredible. And so again, I just couldn't figure out what are they, what are they trying to accomplish here with this? It, it seems, you know, so unusual. And so what I tried to do was figure out what else was going on at that time, what was happening in the 1980s and 1990s. And so I was trying to piece together the puzzles. And, and for those people who know their business history or their economic history, they know that the 80s and 90s were a, a key transformational moment in what worked looked like in the United States. So we have a very deregulatory environment various worker protection laws were kind of falling by the wayside at that time. We have an increased emphasis on increased profits in part because a lot of different things are changing. One, we have globalization. So at the same time that American companies are finally getting some major competition from other countries after some of the setbacks following destruction of World War II. Companies are also recognizing the opportunities inherent in globalization where they're offshoring work. So they're lowering their costs by employing people outside of the United States for less than they would pay American workers. So increased competition is, is making them want to cut their balance sheets. They can also get cheaper labor by looking abroad. 
Another thing that's happening is the workplace is getting more diverse. So more women and people of color are entering positions in employment that had been restricted to them. And that seems great, and obviously it is, but on the balance sheet side of things, a lot of scholars have looked at how companies would hire women and people of color because they could pay them less for doing the same work that a white man would. So you have companies pursuing those cost-cutting strategies as well. You have with Carter in 79 and then Reagan, various political administrations that are abandoning full employment as the way to operate the economy and instead focusing on deficits and making sure that the deficit doesn't get very high, which is a very different approach to managing the economy. But again, focusing less on supporting employees and wages and, and those uh, sorts of things. CEO compensation becomes linked to stock options. So it becomes a lot more connected to CEOs' interests to pursue short-term economic gains in stock prices than it does for them to try to run the company as a steady economic organization where you're not getting a very volatile change in, st in stock prices because the more the stock is worth, the more the CEO is paid. So that's just a few things. There, there are other things that are happening there as well, but the long and short of it is we have a bunch of companies that find themselves in an environment where there are a lot of incentives for them to cut their costs as much as they possibly can in order to increase their profits as much as they possibly can. And the people who feel the brunt of this are their workers. So this is really where we get the end of the, the sort of golden period of employment in the United States, that 20th century, middle of the century, where someone might work for a company, and these were traditionally white men who had this opportunity, might work for a company for 30, 40 years, have steady employment, get a family wage, which is enough money to raise an entire family on a single salary, they would have a pension, so guaranteed retirement. They would have health care benefits, all that sort of stuff. That falls by the wayside in the 80s and the 90s as the companies are reorganizing their priorities around profit maximization. And so the, the jobs that are left after this process, which euphemistically was often referred to as re-engineering in the business press, the jobs left after this process tend to lack stability, the pay is lower, um, the benefits are worse, retirement is worse. In short, it's not a great deal. And so as a response, workers aren't feeling very good about it, as, as you might imagine. At the same time in the 80s and 90s, to deal with this problem of low worker morale, you have business theorists, people who are working in the context of management theory who are trying to come up with ways to maintain the morale of their workers while still pursuing these profit maximization strategies. And so you have this very palpable shift to what is called soft management. 
So what do I mean by soft management? Okay, before the 80s and 90s, management was really about um, wages, it was about incentives, it was about, um, you know, penalties, that sort of thing, but it was really about material changes to people's working conditions. How much are you paying them? That sort of thing. When we're talking about soft management, we're talking about companies that are trying to create a very specific kind of relationship with their employees. One that emphasizes care, one that emphasizes familial relations, one that emphasizes emotions in this process. And the theory is that if you can create this emotional connection with your employees, that will get rid of your morale problems. And of course, this is where TV comes in. So TV is seen as exactly that, the soft, fun, familial medium that does that soft management work for employers so that you would have employers where your CEO would come on the television and talk to you live, take your questions, you could call in and ask the CEO a question, which was quite new at the time. And it felt like, or it was supposed to feel like, the CEO really cared about you, really cared about the community, because after all, they were spending all of this money on giving you this kind of nice, shiny present, this TV show, this spectacle, that sort of thing. And of course, a few million dollars for a TV network is much cheaper than paying a bunch of people with raises or keeping everybody on, on the, the employment chart. So that kind of solved the mystery for me. And, and that's also something that I think you can continue to see is an emphasis on this soft management language. I don't think that's gone away. I'm struck in, in both of those examples that the, the first is kind of a time space shifting and, and the second a relational shifting uh, of the power of communication in, in this, in your case, kind of electronically mediated communication to kind of remake our, our life worlds or our everyday worlds or, or at least attempt to, as well as struck by it's not just email entering my home anymore. It's it, the entirety of work here in, in kind of pandemic area. I, I am working from my office today, but that's that's unusual with uh, Zoom and Teams and, and everything else uh, getting getting right into my house and and then the effort to build a relationship between me and and my organization that that employs me perhaps even this podcast speaking well is an effort to to create a stronger relationship between ourselves and and our various publics. I love that you bring up uh, video conferencing or chatting or all of the new ways, especially in the current moment where. We're trying to connect with each other, even when we might be isolated and thinking about how that might be doing some of that shifting for us. Actually, I was in a graduate class just last night and we were talking about this very thing. We were reading Marshall McLuhan, his very famous, the medium is the message, where he walks us through this idea that it's not the content of a particular medium that matters. When we're watching television, it's not, it doesn't really matter if we're watching a comedy or a drama. Instead, the medium itself, the way that television connects us, changes the scale of our human relations, the scale at which we connect each other. 
And we were just thinking about how video conferencing technology, for example, has really done a lot. You might think about whether we're watching a Q&A for the ACT Human Rights Film Festival or having a class on Zoom or going to a meeting on Zoom or any a social call on Zoom, right? All of those are different experiences, sure. But at the same time, the medium of Zoom itself has introduced these huge shifts in the way that we connect to each other, connect with each other, no matter what we're doing. Some of that has to do with time and space. Some of it has to do with increased intimacy, the fact that people are kind of coming into our homes in a way that they didn't before and we're going into other people's homes. It has to do with the way that we have to manage ourselves, mute ourselves when other people are talking. There's so many really interesting things that are that are happening, especially right now, both in the context of work, but also spilling over into the context of leisure. And I think that's one of the things that my work tries to do is think about what are some of the connections uh, or what can we learn when we compare the way that media is working in our leisure time with the way that it works in our work time? I, I want to pursue that question, um, in, in, that relationship between work and media in a slightly different way in just a moment. But I, but I want to also note that these media um, certainly change our relationship to each other kind of in the form in the Marshall McLuhan sort of thing. But I've been thinking a lot about I'm not trained in this at all. But the ways in which our colleagues in interpersonal and intercultural and co-cultural communication might be thinking about how we're changing gestures, the ways in which we smile. How, how does one smile with a mask on when, when you're in person? So, so in these very kind of interpersonal sorts of ways that the media are changing, at least at this moment, ch changing the ways in which we gather our cues from each other about the nature of our relationships. You've also spent Kit um, time thinking about the people who do the work of producing the media. Again, when, when I when I'm on this call with you, or I'm on a Zoom, I don't think about the people who built the platform, or the people who I don't necessarily think a lot about the people who you know made the reality TV show a possibility. And so, so we've talked about how companies have used media to kind of manage their workers. And now I'm kind of curious about what what's the ways in which media companies manage their workers to help produce media. Can, can can you talk with us a little bit about that? Yeah, this is something that I talk about quite a bit in my classes and uh, for my film class, for the film class that I'm teaching this semester, for example, I always let students vote on our final week and what they want to talk about. And the last two times, both times they voted to talk about work in the media industry. So I think there's a lot of interest in it. And we have some graduate students here who are doing some really interesting work uh, at CSU on the media industries. I like the way that you phrased this question, thinking about the people who build our platforms, um, thinking about all of the work that's invisible, because I think it's easy to forget that most of the people who work in the media industries are below the line workers. And so what do I mean by that? Well, there's an easy shorthand that's often used in the film uh, industry to distinguish between 
above the line and below the line workers. Above the line workers are those people whose names you know. They are the people who get to receive their Oscars during the telecast, not the people who are given technical awards at a lunch uh, ceremony some weeks before the actual Oscars that we all see. So you're, you're above the line, they're directors, actresses, actors, and so on. Below the line workers are everybody else, the working class people who do the majority of the work in the media industry. They're the people who work in props, costumes, various assistants, catering, lighting, cinematography, all of these areas. That's one thing that we could think about is all of the work uh, that, that tends to be invisible but is really, really crucial uh, to the media industries. And it's that work that I'm going to kind of focus on. It's that work I tend to talk about in my classes and it's that kind of work that graduate students like Kai Bennett are researching uh, in, in their research projects. So some of the things that distinguish that kind of work from other areas is that it tends to be heavily collaborative. And of course, collaboration is, is a big part of uh, work in a lot of fields. When we're talking about media production, we tend to fixate or focus on auteurs, big names like Ava DuVernay or um, Spike Lee, you know, big auteur names. But there are a lot of people who work on those projects and work together to create various shared visions of, of what they hope the project will actually turn out to be. So collaborative, creative, even if you are in areas that we might not think of as necessarily creative lighting, there's a lot that lighting can add to something. Um, so I would say that it's very project based. If you're in TV, the work is a little more regular, especially if you're working in network television, if you're working on film, you might work for a few months out of the year and then have to wait around until you find another project to work on. So the timelines are a little different. So those are some of the things that, that are a little different. It can also be fairly hierarchical because of the guild system, the way the unions work. Anyway, we could talk about more of that if you want. There's also a lot of things that media work shares with other types of work. One of the, the hard things in Hollywood and especially the major media industries is that they're experiencing some of the same issues that we see in other workplaces today. That is the rise in precarity, the rise in low wages, extremely long hours, irregular scheduling, lack of benefits, at-will employment, all of the, these sorts of things that, you know, are building off of that transition I talked about in the 1990s, but are just becoming a lot more intense. So you really do see that in the media industries, but that's not unique to the media industries. One of the things that I often talk about when I talk uh, with my students are a couple of exciting things that are happening in the media industries. There's been a lot of activity and action around uh, sort of collective movements for better pay or better work protections. So you might have heard of Pay Up Hollywood, 
which is uh, public movement by assistance to actually get paid for the work that they're doing. You might have heard of Time's Up, um, women fighting against discrimination in the industry. You might have, I don't know if you watched the Golden Globes. If you haven't, the Golden Globes, like the Oscars, like a lot of these major awards organizations, have not been doing a good job of including diverse membership, of supporting um, diverse creators, giving opportunities to people who've traditionally been shut out of the opportunity to direct a major motion picture or the opportunity to write certain kinds of films or get funding for distributing um, their, their programs. And so the, the Golden Globes, just using that example because it, it just aired quite recently, there have been a lot of really great critically acclaimed films that came out this year, Defy Bloods, My Rainey's Black Bottom, and they were completely shut out of the top categories, you know, best motion picture. People were kind of looking around, asking why, and it's a problem that's a problem in the industry and has been recognized as a problem in the, in the industry for years, and it's that there's not a single Black voting member in the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association, they're the people who vote on the Golden Globes, they're the people who nominate Golden Globes. And it's not a recent problem. There hasn't been a black member in the HFPA for 20 years. It's kind of unbelievable. And so same thing has happened with the Oscars. Last year, there was an incredible year. Again, Ava DuVernay was snubbed. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of the director of Lady Bird and um, Little Women. She also uh, did not get a Best Director nomination. Lulu Wang, who directed The, Fair the Farewell, was shut out. Um, there were a ton of women who directed really critically acclaimed uh, films that were shut out of the top categories. And so we see this happen over and over and over again. But it does seem like there's something of a sea change happening now. I do think following some of the collective action and the collective organizing that people are doing in the media industries, that there's something to look forward to. I am really, really hopeful and optimistic that the, these problems are coming to light and that they will lead to more equitable systems in the Hollywood industry. You were talking about the precarity of work in the media industry, especially in the, as you call them, the below line, the line workers, the people who do a vast majority of the uh, work just in terms of hours, I suppose. And then you were talking about how uh, media had been used by companies to kind of help us transition, I'm saying this as kindly as I can to companies, I don't know why, uh, transition to a more precarious workplace in the 80s and the 90s in this kind of uh, post-Fordist economic system, the financialization. Um, and th those things seem, seem really connected. And, and then you ended in, in a way that I was reflecting on this union movement of Amazon workers. I think it's in Alabama and, and this kind of effort kind of reckoning around um, full employment, reckoning around racial and, and justice, gender, gender and sexuality justice. So, so uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have you think with us about work in the media, so many folks who are thinking about communication um, kind of as a discipline are thinking they want to work it in 
in the media and, and much of their work will be in these uh, below the line sort of context. Hey, uh, I want to I want to finish out our conversation here, Kit, with just uh, c considering all the things that we've talked about working in the media, the ways in which media tries to adjust this to our work. Uh, what could you give us just like what are two two or three kind of takeaways um, for for speaking well in, into our current condition from the work that you've done? One, I would remember that work is a cultural category that is given or a label, let's say, that's given to certain activities and not others. And different groups have a stake in defining the meaning of work and the value that work has for us. So it's valuable, for example, to for employers to make us feel like work is crucial to our identity, that it's the main thing that fills our that fulfills our passions um, because it redirects us back to work. Uh, it, it suggests that we should uh, accept working longer and harder for less pay and taking on more risk. And I, I mean, work can be fulfilling. It can be wonderful. Um, it can be challenging in all of the right ways. My, my parents have both held jobs that they've absolutely loved. My grandmothers held jobs that they loved and were important to who they were and their opportunities for engaging with other people. My older family members to find that kind of fulfillment, I think that's increasingly rare. I mean, both my parents are still working, but not at the jobs that they absolutely loved most because they were small businesses and they've been shut out in the current economic climate. Being a professor is awesome. I love it, but it's a tough gig to get. Um, and so I think the question becomes, how do we as workers establish the conditions that we need to be fulfilled in work to be able to connect with work, um, to be paid fairly for what we're doing, um, to really enjoy what work can offer and to connect um, with our, our colleagues. Um, so, so thinking about how people talk about work, how different groups talk about work, and what value it is for those groups in how they're defining work and, and how they're saying work should play a role in our lives. I think that's the first thing that I would say is, is really think carefully about how work language is being used. The second thing I would say, and I'm, I'm so glad you brought up Amazon because Amazon is really fascinating. We think of it as a manufacturer. It is a media company, right? If you think of Amazon Prime, if you think about how Amazon is increasingly trying to get awards for its original productions and that sort of thing, it is trying to position itself as a media company. So it's this really, it's a really, really fascinating company to watch for the way that it's sort of bending our understanding of, of what a media company is. But I think Amazon is also interesting exactly for what you're pointing out, which is the current activity around the unionization drive in Alabama. And I think this goes back to what I was saying with regards to how employers were using television in the 1990s in order to make their employees feel better without giving them any extra money. Right now you see Amazon trying its very best 
to communicate with its workers. And this is a very traditional strategy, but using anti-union propaganda um, and doing it in a whole bunch of different ways. They've put flyers up in bathrooms. They're texting people every day. They're sending out mailers to people's homes. They're forcing people to go to mandatory anti-union meetings. They're doing a whole bunch of different things. And all to spread this sort of message, which is the union will get you nothing. The union is only going to take money from you in the form of dues. If you join a union, you might lose your job, right? A union is only dangerous. It goes back to what I was saying with the, with the TV, right? Why would a company spend so much money on a certain kind of communication? What is in it for them? If Amazon truly thinks that a union can get its workers nothing, it's irrational for the company to actually spend any money on an anti-union drive. What is it to Amazon if it won't actually make a material difference in its workers' lives? So that's, that's another thing, just being critical of um, those messages, trying to figure out, again, what's at stake for the for the different um, stories that people are telling about work and then more materially i think if we look in the media industry again i'm going to claim amazon as a media company um, so we can take amazon we can take the things like pay up hollywood we can take the nba strike again media right there have been a lot of really exciting movements on the worker solidarity, on the union front, where workers are collaborating with each other. And I think that's really one of the only ways that workers um, can, can gain enough power to exert some control over some of those things that that worker that employers have been working on with media, the extension of the workday, trying to fix problems with precarity and, and so on. I think that kind of collaborative collective action uh, is is the way to go. Kid, I love being a professor too. Um, it's an enormous, it's an enormous privilege and opportunity because we get to have conversations like these that that um, both engage us in in kind of interesting intellectual puzzles. And I don't, I don't mean that in, in the least as an in an undermining sort of way. The part of being being humans, at least of the sort the sort that many of us are, is that we we we're curious about how the world works and academics get to spend a lot of time doing that. But then, but then we also get to spend time thinking about how the world works and how that might make a difference in ours and others' lives. So it's been a real pleasure to, to chat with you today uh, about work and about media and about media in our everyday lives. Th thank you very much for joining us on Speaking Well. This has been great. Thank you so much. Speaking Well is a production of the Department of Communication Studies and the College of Liberal Arts at Colorado State University. Carol Bush as the producer and the podcast is recorded and engineered at the studios of KCSU at Colorado State University. I'm your host, Greg Dickinson. Until next time, be well.